Hello and welcome to WMQ&A. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week's guest is the writer of the new Mad Cave series, Bountiful Garden. Please welcome back to the show, Ivy Noel Weir. Welcome back, Ivy. Thanks for having me back. So uh, it is the end of August as we are recording. Uh, how was your summer? Were you at least able to enjoy those couple weeks where it felt like everything was going to be okay, but really it was the <laughs> eye of a hurricane? <laughs> yeah, I, I would say so. Um, so I moved to Boston about maybe four and a half, five months before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So my husband and I hadn't seen like any other city yet because we moved up also right before like the holidays mm-hmm. so we we spent the summer kind of getting to know boston after having lived here for almost two years you know and that was kind of on the list of things to talk about you know uh when you're acclimating to a new town uh matt i'm just gonna bounce around here uh you know what are the places that you kind of seek out to find your place there you know were you immediately like all right i need my restaurant i need my bookstore i need my thrift shop you know what were you looking for to claim boston as your own um so my mom has the reason we moved up is is to be closer to family and my mom has lived up here for i think like seven years at this point so Mm -hmm. i've come to visit her so i knew some places like there are amazing bookstores here so i already knew where to find some really good bookstores and some really good comic shops. There's a ton of really good comic shops and really thriving comics community, which is great. Um, And for us, it's like my husband is Korean. So we always have to find like a good Korean restaurant, which we did right before the pandemic. And then Korean food's not great (laughs) for takeout. So we haven't been back really, but we've gotten to know the takeout and delivery scene where we are quite well (laughs) at this point. (laughs) As, as so many of us have. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) um, So Philly and Boston, two very different cities that both hate New York. Uh, <laughs> does Boston have a, a gritty equivalent? You know, the true hero of Philadelphia. You know, it's like, I'm sure that somebody who's from here would be like, yes, we do. But I'm still so Philly. It's like, it's, I'm, I am forever just like a Philly loyalist. And so I'm mm-hmm. like, no one could have a gritty or, you know, if people up here talking about Gritty, I'm like, yeah, okay, well, the Fanatic was our original horrifying monster. So. <laughs> Philly has the best mascots. <laughs> True. Um, one other thing that, that Philadelphia and, and Boston areas both have in common lately, uh, which is new, is tornadoes. Yeah. What the hell is that? I don't Not know. that any of us is a meteorologist. I don't care for it. No, me neither. no I, I really don't need my wife shaking me awake at 145 in the morning saying, honey, there, there's a, a tornado watch. We need to go and sit by the basement while, while one cat sleeps through it. and The other one runs around the entire house in a mad panic. Oh, I know. Cat. I like so my husband is from Memphis, Tennessee, originally, and I'm mm-hmm. from, you know, Philly. So we get tornado warnings and I'm like freaking out because i've never experienced them and he you know grew up where they get tornadoes all the time so he's like do you see one no we're fine <laughs> like <laughs> unless you hear it we're good mm-hmm. <laughs> like how can you be so chill <laughs> and listen it's good to have that balance uh <laughs> You know, especially when you're getting woken up by by National Weather Service texts at two or three a.m. or whatever it is. There was one buzzed my my parents' house or or, or you know blew through their town uh, not too long ago. And of course, these things are never confirmed as tornadoes until like the next day. So yeah. that so it's not till like eighteen hours later that I'm texting my mom like, uh, "Did you guys get a tornado?" And she's like, eh, "We lost power, but we we drank in the clubhouse. It was fine." I'm like, "Okay, that's." correct answer i'm glad to hear it (laughs) no apparently not this but a storm a year before the pandemic but not much before the pandemic one touched down in the Shoprite parking lot like five miles from my house and apparently the only thing it really did was it touched down on one of the carols where they put the shopping carts so Mm -hmm. there were shopping carts for like miles 
Like one of them went, I think, into the shop, like through the glass of the shop, right? But that was the worst damage that it did. So mm -hmm. all things taken, it could have been much worse. But I think they spent a lot of time gathering those cards again. The unempty damages of these tornadoes. The emotional toll of picking up all those cards. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's probably a neat drone photo, though. The sort of the overhead shot mm -hmm. of, of all the mm -hmm. cards spread out. You look for the pattern. But... Um, so since you've been up there, do you have like one home-based comic shop or do you like to visit a few of them? So what's cool about the comics scene up here and the comic shops up here. So I live really close to a shop called Kamikaze, which is great. They're an awesome shop. They've been the one that I've been to the most, but it feels like each of these shops kind of has their own sort of niche type thing, which is nice. So you can bounce around and they work together and they collaborate and it's, it's nice. It feels like a community. Um, there's a shop up here called Comicopia that has like one of the best manga selections I've ever seen. And it's like something that they specialize in. So it's cool because if I'm like, okay, I want to go and check out like new single issues and go to Kamikaze. If I'm like, I want to go pick up manga, I go to Comicopia. Um, there's one called Hub Comics that does really good like YA and juvenile. So it, it's cool. It, yeah, you get to kind of go around and, and check every place out. But Kamikaze is like literally a 15 minute walk from my apartment. <laughs> so nice. I'm definitely there the most. Um, so then uh one, one more one more sort of preamble bit before we start talking about battleful garden uh i hear that you recently opened a tiktok uh as two senior citizens who inspired statler and waldorf from the muppet show uh, <laughs> <laughs> how is that going so i feel okay I feel like I am 1 million years old whenever I go on TikTok. My little sister is 10 um, and she's got one and she's very into like cosplay and anime. So she goes on there and okay. she peer pressured me into getting one like a year ago. Mm -hmm. And I did nothing with like occasionally I would lurk and like look at them and be like, mm -hmm. I don't understand what I'm why is everyone singing this Fortnite song? Help. <laughs> I'm 32 <laughs> years old. I'm too old to be here. Um, and so then in the past year, especially since the pandemic, there's been this rise of book talk which is like book recommendation and author TikTok. And I was like, oh, that's cool. But I probably won't participate in that because again, I'm 1 million years old and I don't belong there. Um, and I just also does not, I don't love to be like um, perceived. So it just okay, feels okay. like TikTok is where you go to be perceived, right? So like Twitter, it's different. I get on, I tap my little musings and then I go on my way and nobody has to like look at me or hear my voice. So mm -hmm. um, I was going to not do it. And then I actually, I was walking past an indie bookstore in a town, a couple towns over from where I live. And they had a sign in the window that was like, we have book talk recommendations in stock. And I was like, I'm going to have to do this, aren't I? I'm going to have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so um thankfully steens uh who mm -hmm. we all we all know and love absolutely um, mm -hmm. they they've been doing tiktok for a little while um to document mostly how they're learning to roller skate oh. and i was like steens help me <laughs> help me do this <laughs> so they put me on to some like good people to follow and like things to watch and so I'm I'm learning but it feels like learning another language like I feel like I had Twitter like down and now I gotta learn like a whole other thing there's just only so much room in my brain like, <laughs> I still gotta write books at some point like <laughs> it took me two and a half hours to make my first TikTok video <laughs> uh, now, now I gotta become a video editor oh. I know it's hard like props to these kids for like learning video editing on the fly because like I went to school for photography and video and I'm sitting mm -hmm. there like I can use Adobe Premiere and Final Cut but I can't figure out how to make the text disappear at the right moment in this app <laughs> like I never made it to Instagram so <laughs> <laughs> one up on me <laughs> um 
but yeah, so you're here to talk about Bountiful Garden, which is uh, your new series uh, from Mad Cave with artist Kelly Williams, colorist Giorgio Spoletta, and letterer Justin Birch. Uh, issued, uh, there was a free comic book day preview. Issue number one launches September 8th. Uh, for the listeners, I'm going to go ahead and read the uh, solicit pitch. Uh, in the year 2200, a team of teenage scientists is sent on a terraforming mission, terraforming mission to a distant planet. Selected as the best and brightest of their generation, architect Jonas, botanist Marnie, biologist Jane, engineers Anya and Kamari, and security detail Kurt are all put into cryostasis expected to wake up when it's time to prepare to land on their assigned planet. When they're awakened abruptly 10 years early, halted above a strange planet, the teens are asked, uh, tasked with trying to figure out why they're stalled or what stalled them. Uh, as they break into two teams, one tasked with fixing the ship, the other with exploring the unknown planet below, they're faced with an increasingly nightmarish scenario as they encounter a cosmic horror that seems to not only have attacked their ship, but also their minds. So uh, what is the origin of this series? So Mad Cave actually approached me um, and they had like a very broad strokes kind of high level idea. Um, I, and I apparently they had talked to Kelly even long before they talked to me. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, it was so very vague. Like I can't even remember what exactly it was. It was, it may have just been like, there's scientists, they're young. Like there was not even really an age range given and mm -hmm. something stops their ship. That might've been all the direction I was given. Okay. Um, and so I was really allowed to run with it. And actually Steens was the editor on this book. Mm -hmm. um, and so I got to develop it with her, with Kelly and kind of really like give it a, it feels it's, it is IP, you know, and it, it's a work for hire, but um, it feels like something that I came up with because we did so much work as a team to develop it from a concept to a finished product. So it was a really fun project in that regard. Um, and so, you know, I knew once I got kind of the, the idea uh, in hand, like immediately what I wanted to do with it and how I wanted to run with it. So it was cool to get to develop it with everybody and, and take what was really like a one or two sentence pitch to the full story arc that we end up with. So uh, Kelly, apparently, uh, Kelly got wind of this, uh, you know, uh, around the same time, you know, Bad Kim approaches you. How does the rest or how does the whole team come together? How do you and Kelly sort of end up on the same, uh, you know, path and everything? So Steens and Mad Cave came to me and Steens, you know, it's funny because, you know, we did our quality together really close. Um, but I also know that Steens would never ever give me a job she didn't think that I was suited for she was like full of any punches so like mm -hmm. I don't think there's a scenario where any nepotism factored into this but she she was like she told me that Kelly was the artist on the book and everything so like pretty mm -hmm. much the entire creative team as far as the art goes was set before I ever came on board oh, okay um and you know I don't know if that's generally how Mad Cave works or if it was just this title um, but basically when I came on, we, we hopped right into the development, like, and we were working in, in tandem to kind of like, here's what the characters, here's what I envision the characters, here's Kelly's sketches, you know, here's the ship and how Kelly sees that. So really we went from brainstorming to the issue one script pretty quickly because all the pieces were already in place. Mm -hmm. um, and Scenes is a really good project manager. So she kept everybody on task um, and really like was good at getting us to work on one thing and move into the next in a really smooth way that got everything going. So it was really, you know, getting everybody on the same track, getting everybody on board and working together was, was pretty smooth and really easy. So I'm mm -hmm. thankful for that. <laughs> Uh, it, it, it sounds like based on the way this was kind of uh, set up, you know, was it, would you, is it fair to say that this is, is different uh, in that aspect from other projects that you've worked on previously? Yeah. So archival quality, you know, was creator owned, like we, mm -hmm. Steens and I came up with that and pitched it to Oni. And so we had an editor, but, you know, we already came in with like, because we did it for their open submissions, we had essentially the entire outline and, and some chunk of the script and some chunk of the art done. And I mean, did all that got, you know, reworked over the mm -hmm. editorial process, but um, we weren't starting from zero 
per se. Um, I just finished doing two middle grade graphic novels for Little Brown for Young Readers. Mm -hmm. And that was a completely different process <laughs> than this one. Um, because, you know, that's that's book publishing. You know, Little Brown yeah. is, a, is a pretty traditional book publisher. So it was much more um, like that. Like I was working with an editor. Um, I didn't really communicate very much with the art team um just like a handful of times throughout the process of the book um and so that was actually probably a steeper learning curve for me than the mad cave stuff because I'm so used to working really closely with the artists that mm -hmm. I had to learn like oh like we're not going to talk every day like I need to be way more descriptive in what I'm giving them in script because mm -hmm. I'm not going to talk to them so you know the nice thing about working on a situation like uh, Bountiful Garden is that, you know, Kelly and I could be in contact basically anytime he had a question and, you know, Steens was sort of running communication between us anyway. So really like Kelly and I did an interview for Mad K's live stream a while ago where they were like, how much did you guys talk? And we were like, not that much actually, because everything was really just kind of handled like in the process of how we were doing things. Um, were, was the you know, and, and again, you know, we've talked about working, you know, archival quality graphic novel, you know, Little Brown, obviously, you know, uh, the book market, uh, you know, was the sing, you know, was single issue comics something that you had been, you know, wanting to try uh, your hand at writing, Did it, you know, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I, that was like, that was the goal when I was like a teenager. First decided that I wanted to write comics because I wanted to write, you know, for Marvel because I was a big X-Men nerd. And um, you Aren't know, <laughs> it's the human condition. And yeah. um, you know, I I like working in graphic novel format because I like kind of, you know, the A to B and everything is sort of it's one project and you're not like there's no gaps in time and you're kind of working on one thing from beginning to end. So I was a little nervous about taking on a single issue series. It is a mini, it's only five issues. Um, so that was helpful also for a first time because I think if I had been stuck with like, this is an ongoing, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it was good. It was good to kind of dip my toes into the single issue thing, but it was really, it's a challenge because it's a whole other method of thinking of pacing as a writer because sure. you need to end each issue on like a cliffhanger so somebody will pick up the next issue. So like, rather than being like, okay, well, I have this entire narrative to work through in a graphic novel and I can, you know, take my time getting from thing to thing, you know, I have 20 pages five times to move the story along and make it so that somebody would want to pick up the next issue. Um, so it was, it was a learning curve, but it was, I think because the team on this book was so strong and, um, Kelly's art, every time it would come in, I would be like, okay, I know exactly where I'm taking this because I know, like, you know, this is what I want to do to like really play up what he's given me here. Like that helps to move it along. Um, and because we were working in such a way that I was getting to see pencils in between the issues, um, that helped. So, um, who, uh, you know, do you have an idea for kind of who the audience is for this book or, or does Mad Cave have, uh, that idea? Like if you're, if you're in the comic shop, uh, uh, you know, who's the reader who's walking into the store who you're, you know, like this is, you know, this is the book you should read. I think people who enjoy like, you know, kind of contemplative horror, um, I think that people who are reading, you know, indie horror books or indie sci-fi books would like it. Um, I draw a lot of inspiration from manga. So if you're like a Junji Ito fan, I feel like Kelly and I probably gave you, you know, a decent amount here. Um, you know, I think that like, for me, the biggest inspirations on it were really things outside of comics. Um, you know, uh, the thing, the movie, um, mm -hmm. and, uh, Jeff Vandermeer's Southern Reach trilogy and Ray Bradbury. And so I think if you're a fan of like any of that kind of genre, this would appeal to you. Um, I think that what I 
tried to go for with it too. And, and what comes across is it's for adult readers. This is intended for adult readers, but mm-hmm. I think that a teen or an older teen would be totally home reading it also if they are uh, looking to read something spooky. So I'm glad it can play both ways. Awesome. Uh, so, mind if I, because this actually it, comes off of that a little. The name of the ship is the Jemison. Mm-hmm. Is that a reference to N.K. Jemison? That's the first thing that popped into my head when I read it. You know, Kelly actually named the ship, huh. um, and I believe that he was naming it after May Jemison. Oh, okay. N.K. is also a good. I mean, really, either one is a pretty good fit. So. Yeah, I mean, I knew the spelling was not the way N.K. Jemison spells yeah. her name, but I was like, well, I mean terraforming you know kids like there there are some crossover there in some of the thematic work so i was curious if that was a reference but now i i can absolutely see the M.A. jemison as well yeah. interesting uh, so you're you're blending sci-fi with cosmic horror and and kids forced to act like adults to survive which is you know nearly nearly always a guaranteed case of the sads um <laughs> which uh which of those elements came first for you in in kind of mapping out this series i so like i said when i got the idea i I knew immediately what i wanted to do with it and i wanted to take it in a cosmic horror direction like i didn't want what stops their ship to be anything that they could like grok in a tangent like a tangible sense (laughs) um the books that got me really into writing were like the pulp guys and the mythos stuff um you know and then you grow older and you're like oh man lovecraft is really a racist huh (laughs) you know (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah but i had an older brother who had all lovecraft books and robert e howard and august derleth and all the guys that were in that set and so i read Mm -hmm. a lot of that stuff when i was growing up robert w chambers and stuff like that so I was like, I'm all about reclaiming mythos fiction. I think that there are people who are doing mythos fiction now. And I think that there's a way to like play on what was created in that time period without the racism <laughs> and like taking it and having, you know, new voices breathe life into cosmic horror, I think is something that because the unknowable is always going to be scary to us you know i mean like i live in fear of the marianas trench existing just day to day just you know if i think about it i'm like whoa you know um so i think that that cosmic horror that mythos fiction that like space horror really speaks to that because like we can't know it and i think that when i knew it was going to be teenagers i was like okay this is a situation where if they're confronted with something so outside of their own possibility, there's two things that happen, right? So normally in a sci-fi horror kind of story like this, like a, you know, sort of trapped together sort of trope um, and it's adults, usually like some, some cooler head will prevail. And with teenagers, mm-hmm. there's no such thing as a cooler head. So already I knew that they were going to be, you know, like, emotional and volatile but at the same time I think somebody that that's that young might be more open to like experiencing the cosmic right because they're they're young and impressionable and that's sort of what this thing is is feeding on is this impressionability Mm -hmm. so I think that there's a lot of it ties into each other you know like I knew that the cosmic horror angle worked best with the young kids. And I knew that the young kids were going to feed into how I played it out. So uh, how was the experience of, of working with Steens as your editor? You know, obviously you've worked together as co-writers, your very, your, your closest friends, uh, you know, uh, how, how was, how was, how was kind of working in those capacities? Steens is a really good editor. Um, and Steens is a really good editor because Steens is like a very, like I said before, very good project manager. Mm-hmm. So, so like, mm-hmm. um, you know, Steens, um, any feedback that I ever get from them, I feel like is so holistically thought out 
that I trust implicitly what they're saying to me. You know, it's not just like a gut reaction. Like they're so talented at like thinking about the entire picture of a comic book down to like page design, you know, they worked in comic book marketing at Lion Forge. They're thinking about the marketing and the sales and they're thinking about, you know, the designer and the letterer. And it's this like really great holistic viewpoint of, of comics. So in a way it was great because I wasn't going into it with an editor I had never worked with before. I already knew Steams was a good editor <laughs> just from being their friend. So I was like, all right, well, at least I know that, you know, I'm going to get a good edit on this book. One of the joys of launching a new series is seeing uh, covers come in from other artists putting their own spin on your and Kelly's uh, creation. You know, without, without asking you to pick a favorite, not asking that, because that way lies madness and why, also why should you? Uh, you know, how was that experience of, of getting you know, this, this other art in from you know, all these other places? It's very cool. I mean, it's not something that I've really experienced before. Like people weren't really making, oh, actually, you know what? We did get one or two pieces of fan art for archival quality. I should not discount those. But, you know, I mean, it's not the same as seeing like, you know, the variant cover. Like I saw Liana Kangas's cover that she did the other day mm -hmm. and I like fully freaked out and made it my phone background, you know, <laughs> like. I was like, it's so weird. There's Jonas, but he looks different. Um, you know, it's it's very cool. Um, you know, but that's the cool part about anything as a writer, I feel like, is that I when I see any art come in, I kind of freak out and make it my phone background because I'm like, <laughs> I can't believe that you did this with that crap I wrote. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> this looks incredible. <laughs> oh man, you must change phone backgrounds a lot. <laughs> Oh, man. Is it is it the same energy uh, as getting a commission sketch from an artist at a con or is it better? It's it's different. Like, so when I was um, I used to have this thing where whenever I'd go to a show, I would try to commission one person to draw Mr. Sensitive from Ecstatics. And oh, that was cool yes. because I got to see the same character, you know, kind of recreated <laughs> by a bunch of different artists um and it's a similar feeling i guess when it's your characters because you've spent so much time with them mm -hmm. they're like i know everything about this character because i've spent the last however long like living and breathing writing this and then when you see different versions of them it it's like seeing you know a different person like oh this is how this person would have envisioned this which would have been a whole other alternate universe of possibilities for this book it was cool i, I am curious now how, how many mr sensitives do you have not a son like me five five or six um yeah. but they um it was like a little bit of a hobby for a while because i love ecstatic no, I, listen, so, I love I love a good themed sketchbook. That that is fantastic. Yeah. So was the the issue one as free comic book day always something that was in the plan, or was it sort of like, hey, guess what? The biggest day of the industry where more people that would ever possibly buy an indie book are going to be handed this. Was that kind of like surprise? You're going out there. It was kind of like that. <laughs> um i don't know the whole process for how you get books accepted for free comic book day um i've worked at free comic book day as a comic book retailer mm -hmm. but I, this is the first time i've ever been on like publishing side of it um and so it was this thing where like steams is like hey heads up this might be free comic book day. And I was like, oh, cool. And then like a couple weeks later, she's like, it is. Like, oh no, <laughs> now people will see it. <laughs> um, but it was so cool. Like, I mean, having especially worked free comic book day as a comic book retailer and like, just, I mean, no, no day makes you feel more like you've been worked over with a baseball bat than working free comic book day. Amen. And knowing that I had a book on the tables this year it was like surreal um it was super weird <laughs> but it was amazing <laughs> uh were you were you tracking response to it uh that day you know kind of 
maybe checking Twitter a little bit more than usual or, or, or just looking for anybody, you know, talking about it? Yeah. I mean, I openly was like, send me photos of it. <laughs> <laughs> so can you see it? Send me a picture. <laughs> um, Make TikToks and... of you holding it. I pay attention to that stuff now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was, I was very excited and like, you know, it was very cool to have people texting me and being like, I picked it up, you know, and I'd be like, yes, amazing. <laughs> You know, uh, this was this was a tough uh, free comic book day this year. You know, uh, it was moved to it was moved to the summer specifically to avoid COVID, and then well, not enough people got vaccinated, and we got Delta variants. Uh, I, you know, I, I wasn't able to go to my shop this year just because I couldn't get out of work. But I, I talked to one of the shop owners afterward. He's like, "Yeah, it was scaled back. Crowd was big, but after last year, it was nice to do something because last year, obviously, there wasn't a free comic book day. They just kind of." meted the books out over the course of the summer. Um, you know, did you get to partake this year? Did you go, you know, go to a shop, get to do a signing or anything? I didn't um, because I actually had like an appointment that day. <laughs> I was oh. like, I should have scheduled this totally different way than when I book would be at free comic book day. Um, you know, but it's also, I, I knew it was going to be scaled back. And so even though it was really exciting, you know, I was like, I, my concern is of course more that comic shop workers are not being exposed to giant crowds of people sure. breathing germs at this Absolutely. point. So, you know, I mean, do I wish that it had been a year when we weren't dealing with a pandemic, of course, but, um, you know, the series still launches in September. So mm -hmm. it's like, I get two launch days, which is pretty cool. <laughs> Uh, it's like having two birthdays. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so as has, has become uh, custom lately, we did get a couple questions from our uh, gold star inquisitor, uh, Asimov Fangirl, uh, who asked on Twitter, uh, I feel the last decade there's been more horror sci-fi sci stories about plant life being a dangerous entity for humanity. Why do you think the increase in this kind of stories? So I think that well, there's two answers I have to this. One is me being like a history nerd and being like, well, plant life has always been kind of a, a trope in horror. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's all very rich herbalist folklore of some of our earliest shared stories are, are plant life based, um, you know, or even going into the pulp era, stuff like Day of the Triffids, that was like an alien <laughs> plant, you know, Um little shop of horrors even. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it's always kind of been around. And I think that my answer down this path mm -hmm. is that plants are um, weird and kind of scary. <laughs> um, I was, <laughs> my, my mom owned a flower shop and, and worked mm -hmm. in a greenhouse when I was growing up and she specialized specifically in like rare orchids. Um, and some of them were really, <laughs> really messed up and weird and like scary looking and like there was one I remember specifically that literally like the way that it pollinated itself was that it had like a dart it would shoot out and somebody I knew like put their nose up to it and it stuck to their nose and like couldn't get it off like their oh. plants are wild yeah. and like you know I'm currently reading Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake which is all about mushrooms and just mm. like the fact that fungi live in and around us and just underneath us and they're mm -hmm. thousands of years old and communicate to each other through electricity and it's just like whoa scary <laughs> you know um it's one of those big unknowable things I was talking about before yeah so I think that there is you know down the more historical route people want to understand something that we don't understand because plants can't communicate with us and they do mm -hmm. all kinds of weird stuff and sometimes they poison us and you know um in many ways they nourish us and so it it's this relationship with this unknowable part of nature um and even just thinking about how quickly like plant life retakes abandoned structures you know there's something kind of scary about that it, it shows people their impermanence mm -hmm. you know um down the other route, the more modern one, I think that in the past 10 years, speaking more specifically to the question, I think a lot of it is, you know, about climate change because it's, you know, seeing plant life 
and natural world exact revenge on humanity. Um, Well-deserved revenge. (laughs) So, you know. Yeah, we suck. (laughs) You see a lot of stories that are about, you know, nature kind of combating humanity, I think, because of that, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that, you know, Jeff Vandermeer in the Southern Reach trilogy, like, there's a lot about plant life in that. And I feel a very Mm -hmm. strong, you know, climate change kind of allegory in that work. Um, You know, even movies like The Happening... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> kind of talk about that you know talk about two polar ends of the spectrum of quality but um you're from philly you're supposed to you know be loyal to m night regardless I, of how i am a signs apologist i love signs and i will defend I, even the village but I don't know that I can do it. The happening yeah, the happening then the last airbender real hard to defend <laughs> real hard <laughs> but you know i think that's that it's a natural storytelling bent to you know explore our guilt over climate change through these revenge stories from nature mm-hmm. well it, listen it, there are two plants behind you so if you if you, if you feel unsafe <laughs> twice <laughs> yeah i have a bunch in here actually oh boy um, oh really okay yeah, yeah <laughs> Over the pandemic, when I started working from home for my day job, I was like, oh, I can have plants again. And then going to the nursery was something I could do safely. And then now they're all over the house. (laughs) (laughs) Once you finish your book about uh, fungus, if you haven't read it, really should recommend a friend of the show, Zach Thompson's I Breathe the Body from Aftershock. yeah, uh, fungus and social media. I, I will say nothing more, but it is it's the most disturbing book I've read this year. Yeah, wow. and I read a lot of horror comics, but it's 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 high up there. Yeah, <laughs> very cool. Yeah, creepy mycelium are always interesting. Uh, that is what that is. Um, yes. <laughs> all right, uh, question number two from Asimov Fangirl: uh, If you became a ghost, what kind of ghost would you like to be? Uh, cited as examples: Poltergeist, Casper. Uh, etc. Those are probably the two two opposite ends of the spectrum. (laughs) Believe it or not, I think I was asked this question on another show when I was promoting archival quality. And I believe that it became the title of the show because I said something like, well, not a Slimer. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I mean, I... I would like to think I would be a poltergeist, you know, like it sounds boss to be a poltergeist. You had to throw stuff around and like, you know, just generally be rowdy. But I know in my heart of hearts that I'd probably be more like, you know, some Victorian wavy ghost who's just sort of like vibing, <laughs> floating around, being sad. Um, Nicole Kidman and the others type of thing. <laughs> Uh, I just don't know that I have the sustained energy to be a poltergeist. <laughs> <laughs> but gothic horror, I could probably handle. I can do that. What are you doing? You know, you're just hanging out, <laughs> floating through a wall occasionally. It's fine. <laughs> Maybe staring wistfully at a living person, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I turn a light or close the door. <laughs> yeah. Make a, a pattern on a, a fogged up mirror, you know, some <laughs> words or a design. Yeah. 100%. I mean, those are my preferred ghosts to read about anyway, or watch movies about. And like, I'm the world's biggest Guillermo del Toro ghost movie fan, and those are his type of ghosts. So sure. then maybe yeah. uh, coloring that answer. Good old Crimson Peak. I yep. love Crimson Peak. That's another movie that I'll, I'll defend to the death. <laughs> So uh, moving on, uh, we've mentioned this already, but you've got a couple graphic novels coming out that are modern retellings of classic novels. Uh, the Secret Garden of 81st Street in October and Anne of West Philly in March. Uh, how did you get involved in those projects? So the editor at Little Brown read Archival Quality um, and the there's another editor at Little Brown who used to be at Lion Forge, who, oh. who knows me, um, Andrew Colvin, who is amazing um and so they reached out to me about secret garden because they had an idea of what they wanted to do with secret garden and they wanted to kind of revisit 
some of the story with sort of a mental health angle and after reading archival quality they were like you might be a good fit for this so um we talked and then i agreed to do secret garden and while we were talking about secret garden they were like we're also going to do anna green gables you're interested in that and i was like yeah sure you know like i this sounds like a fun project and so you know i'll do two of them that's fine um so secret garden was first and and i turned all that in and then anna green gables has just been wrapping up pretty recently um so yeah it was another sort of work for hire thing um but again another one where I was given a lot of free reign um to work collaboratively with my editor and and really develop the stories into retellings that felt authentic to how I would want to tell these stories um while still kind of preserving the core of of what they are and why they've you know sustained interest for you know in Secret Garden's case like 110 years Mm -hmm. Are there, are there parameters or guides that you're given to work by when you're updating these books for, for modern audiences? Not really. Um, Secret Garden, there was more of an idea of kind of what they wanted to do with it. Um, mm-hmm. And I got a little bit more leeway. Um, <laughs> but really, like, I loved Secret Garden as a kid. Loved it. And there was that movie that came out, I think, in like 92 or 95 yeah. with Maggie Smith. Right. And I was so obsessed with that movie as a kid. <laughs> I remember the VHS came with like a locket. I wore that thing everywhere. And like, you know, so for Secret Garden, you know, like I really, I stayed very faithful to the work in many ways because I yeah. loved it so much. You know, there are obvious updates to it and I changed, you know, a decent amount. But I think that, you know, maybe there would have been more parameters set if I hadn't come into it being like, this is what I want to do. And, you know, I mean, I had to write an outline and a proposal like I would for any other pitch. And so they knew what I wanted to do with both of them. You know, we workshopped them together, me and the editor and and sort of figured out what was the things that we made. We wanted to make sure stayed from the mm-hmm. original work. Um, you know, these are middle grade or younger, young adult too. So, you know, just keeping the content that wasn't even something to be said to me. I wasn't going to make like a crazy adult, <laughs> adulted up version of either of these, but you know, like they're, they're definitely, it was fun. It was the most, it was the youngest audience I've ever written for. Okay. Um, and so it was for me, you know, another opportunity to kind of flex a different sort of muscle in writing for kids. And I found that I really enjoyed it. So <laughs> Uh, you mentioned introducing a, a mental health angle into uh, the story. Was there another uh, key difference that you can kind of talk about between the original version and, and this updated graphic novel version? Yeah. So um, in our version, Mary uh, originally lives in Silicon Valley with her parents, so not colonial India. Um, and they, when they, died in an accident she's sent to new york city to live with her uncle on the upper uh upper west side so it's updated in a lot of ways um in that regard i think the mental health piece is definitely the biggest change from the original work in the original her cousin colin um suffers from kind of just a vague victorian ailment <laughs> like it's not really specified what's wrong with him he can't walk and then he can um you know like so um in our version he he struggles with agoraphobia and panic attacks um instead which is why he's you know kind of shut up in the house and, and doesn't go out um and so you know mental health uh awareness and and you know being open about it is very important to me it was something that you know came across in archival quality it's something that i've spoken about a lot since archival quality came out um you know and so i think in this especially writing for a younger audience than um archival quality was intended for you know i really wanted to present i think that colin gave a really good way to show you know like this is how it can be for some people you know, and these are the things people are doing to help him. And these are the ways that his friends can support him. So that's definitely the biggest update to it. Um, the garden and ours is a rooftop garden because it's in New York. Um, and, you know, I, another big part of updating it was in the original. And this was something that I like loved as a kid was that it's this very like, I don't know, I grew up, you know, <laughs> in the city 
And so like these misty moors and like ivy covered gardens and whatever, it was not my life, you know? So Mm -hmm. I kind of flipped that in this. And since it's set in New York, like she spends a lot of time exploring the city, um, you know, going to the natural history museum and like eating all the good food and like, you know, checking out central park. And so I, it's sort of that aspirational magical element of the like English garden only applied to the modern city so it's fun and you know Anne of West Philly has a lot of changes it's definitely more modernized I think um you know it really takes the story the bones of the story and then builds this new story on top of it because I think what's appealing about Anne of Green Gables is not even so much the story it's her um you know and her personality and the way that she inspires people around her to be you know their best and be different and be unique and so um getting to bring it to West Philly was really fun (laughs) um you know it was it was really cool to get to bring it home and there's definitely a lot of love letter to Philly in that book um because you know I think you can tell how much the original author loved where she was from you know you know Prince Edward Island and and all of the the way that she describes it when Anne goes there and you know the beauty of natural Canada and all this stuff so um I was like well if I'm gonna be able to capture any element of that I think it has to be (laughs) where I'm from and where I love which is it's Philly um I did have to make a note when I turned in the script because at one point they get water ice and I was like, do you know what this is? To the editor? <laughs> I was like, did I say this? Well, you know what I mean? And she was like, I do not. <laughs> if I say pork roll or Taylor ham, do either of those mean anything to you? Can I say Here is an appendix of key Philly terms. <laughs> water ice, hergies. One. <laughs> The character yells, go birds, for no reason. <laughs> Why is he wearing World Series 2008 champ shirts since 2021? <laughs> uh, that's right. They're still holding on. Uh, <laughs> so who was the first person or when was the first time someone pointed out to you? Oh, so you've got Bountiful Garden and Secret Garden coming out around the same time. Oh, everybody all the time. Actually, right. here's the the real kicker is they were supposed to have the same pub date originally. Oh my gosh, wow. And then Secret Garden moved. And I was like, because I was not sure how I was gonna handle that day. <laughs> like, I mean, i everyone would have been confused. And I wouldn't want people who are picking up Seeker Garden for their 10-year-old to pick up Bountiful Garden and be like, what is this? I don't remember the garden trying to eat the girl. (laughs) But I'm into it. (laughs) Oh, man. Um, it, uh, your mom having the, the the flower shop background, she excited for for all these uh, projects that involve uh, plants or fauna, or at least the word garden in some way. <laughs> yeah, actually, I hit her up for a lot during these because, like, in the secret garden, um, I tried to put a lot of actual like real world botany stuff into it um, and trick the kids in the learning. Um, and <laughs> that's how you got to do it. Just, you know, maybe they'll feel inspired to like make their own little garden because, you know, I think that part of what made me inspired to like, you know, be more eco-conscious and care about the environment throughout my life was that I had that relationship to the natural world via my mom and working in the greenhouse and working in the garden. So I was like, well, maybe, you know, this will inspire kids to like get their hands in the dirt. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was constantly like texting her being like, what's something you could plant on a rooftop garden in New York City? Hey, if I were to have somebody put this in a container, would it die? <laughs> um, <laughs> so she was very helpful. Um, she also helped me with sourcing some really creepy like ferns to show Kelly when I was starting to like kind of describe like what I wanted the monster to look like. Mm. Um, it's very, in my mind, very fern based because they curl up very tightly before they open up into the frond and so 
it's they're so creepy when they're curled up like that and I was like mm-hmm. this this is what I want <laughs> I want this like really weird tiny curled up hairy scary leaf thing <laughs> so she's been a good resource I mean I don't know that I would have written to botanically inclined books had I not had the childhood that I did um mm-hmm. or nor would we have so many plants in our apartment <laughs> <laughs> So, so we're talking about things that are green and so we're gonna we're gonna skew out of comics for for a moment because on twitter you recently saw green knight mm-hmm. uh are you big into the the arthur the arthurian matter of britain so i was a you know like some kids are like they're like oh i was a horse girl i was a mythology <laughs> kid <laughs> yeah. um and i like Arthurian myths and legends were not my purview. I was more of an, a Norse kid. Okay. Um, I really liked all the the pranking and murdering of Norse <laughs> mythology as a child. But um, I have read I read Tolkien's translation because I was like big Lord of the Rings dork also in high school. Um, one of and- us. One of us. <laughs> <laughs> So I did read it and I was really excited to see the movie because I also think that it's really like interesting and important to cast Dev Patel in like a traditionally like Anglo (laughs) kind of role. Um, And it also looked beautiful. And I was like, I really, I want to see this. So we did the like A24, like digital screening, which was like nine o'clock on a Wednesday and I was like, it was later than I stay up usually, but I'm going to do it. And then like the <laughs> next day they put it on Amazon Prime to rent. I was like, you bamboozled me. <laughs> I could have gone to bed. Um, <laughs> and watched it with breakfast. <laughs> I could have watched it at a normal time. Um, but my husband had never read the poem, right? Mm-hmm. He's like the least, like he's, it's funny because he was like a nerdcore rapper and he is a big nerd, but about like almost totally different things than me. (laughs) So he was, I think for him, I I supplied like a little context at the end because I think you do have to have possibly a greater than layman knowledge of Arthurian myth to get a lot out of that movie. A little bit, yeah. I mean, I'm a I'm an Arthur nerd, so that was I was fascinated to see some of the different takes, and it's like, huh, they did the kiss thing. I'm really pleased. I was, a little, you know, five years ago, maybe ten, but at least ten, if not five, that would not have flown in, you know, mainstream cinema. I mean, it's a twenty four, so it's right on the edge of mainstream yeah. cinema, but but still, good for them. Yeah, and I mean, it was beautiful, like. Was- gorgeous so pretty the costume design was unbelievable and you know i really enjoyed it and so i was glad you know he he managed to enjoy it too even having not read it but definitely at the end i was like here's what some of those things were (laughs) here's why that happened I just love the way it's turned film Twitter into like it's unleashed all of their medieval comparative literature uh, (laughs) degrees that they all suddenly. (laughs) Uh, But uh, let's move from the highbrow to uh, well, we'll descend the brow. Based on our our, uh, extensive conversation of Vanderpump rules the last time you were on. uh, What what uh, what reality TV are you watching right now to get through? Ooh, well, okay. Um, it's Bachelor in Paradise right now, which okay. is the reward that we get for enduring <laughs> two seasons of Bachelor and Bachelorette franchise. Sure. Um, very important. Um, and so we just finished. The, the beauty of my marriage is that I married somebody who will also watch this stuff with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is like what we do together. <laughs> You think that's great um f boy island on hbo max which is like i think made for people who watch as much reality tv as i do because it's very like winky and meta but it's also still really stupid so it keeps you working (laughs) out of it um so we watched that and the current season of real housewives beverly hills is fascinating because there is a housewife who's 
husband is currently going through this legal case outside of the show, Mm -hmm. um, Tom Girardi, who was the lawyer on the Aaron Brockovich case. Um, Wow. Okay. And he's being charged with embezzling from his firm and basically stealing money from the settlements for like burn victims and like orphans. (laughs) Um, Horrible horrible news story and for some reason his wife is still allowed to be on the show and she talks about the case all the time (laughs) and it's like this shouldn't be allowed and like if (laughs) if he goes to jail and or i mean he has the big question is whether or not she knew and is like Mm -hmm. complicit it'll be like a historical document that bravo has hours of her lying about not knowing what's going on in this case so bravo continues to provide uh i i will say i watched uh at least the beginning i don't know first like half hour or so of the bachelor in paradise premiere the other day uh before bed because my you know my wife's into that as well uh the energy was just it was weird weird energy it, it, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, okay, so I know, I know, and I understand why Chris Harrison is no longer in the mix, mm-hmm. but replacing him with David Spade is just a, a choice. I like the energy that David Spade is bringing, because it's like very like existentialist, I feel. It's like, you know, like he, it's not so much why am I here hosting Bachelor in Paradise? It's like, why are any of us here on this earth hurtling towards death on a beach? uh with wells the bartender like it's very it's a very chaotic energy and you know it's that and like there's just some very sad storylines this season i don't know this past season of the bachelorette was very strange and it's gonna feed into a weird paradise um but i'm curious to see apparently there are other guests uh hosts who are coming one of whom i think is lil john so <laughs> okay. okay come on board yeah. let's just let's hope their host search goes better than the jeopardy one did mm, yeah uh, yeah <laughs> yeah but it you know it, it's weird spade you know cut his uh you know made his bones on snl doing that weird like hollywood minute sketch during update like 30 years ago and like there's and i and i think this is why it's it feels existential now because like it was like, well, you did that then. Now come out here and, and talk to, you know, grocery store Joe for like a two minute uh, interval. And he's just like, yeah, all right. Okay. All right. So you're on the island now again, huh? Yep. <laughs> yeah. She's very just soul weary. Um, yeah. <laughs> although I think that my favorite part of that first episode was seeing how many of them coming down the stairs knew who he was didn't know who he was and were pretending they knew who he was or just straight up was like i do not know who this dude is yeah that just made me sad somebody <laughs> calling him dave Chappelle really i was like chef's kiss perfect this is what i want out of this <laughs> one million years old <laughs> there, there there was one thing you had tweeted i think it was it was grocery store joe having the uh the the same energy as that guy in that one i think you should leave sketch where he's like yeah in the old man costume saying i don't even want to be around anymore grocery store joe is bringing this sad sad vibe i've i've been using a screen cap of him like just like when he was making weird noises with his lips is just captioned with softly blows raspberry whenever anything like mildly frustrating happens Yeah. Uh, I want I like I want good for him I don't know why I mean they get me like the problem is that I I started watching reality television when I was in art school uh-huh. um because I was doing a series of paintings of the Jersey Shore cast as Catholic martyrs like and I was using like gold leaf and <laughs> on like wood and all this stuff that and, is amazing uh, <laughs> I was like I started doing like all this art kind of based around like the voyeuristic kind of culture of reality television. And then at a certain point it stopped being academic. <laughs> it started getting and now real. Now I'm just here. <laughs> now I'm just a trash person. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, I used to watch Kurosawa. <laughs> but Bachelor in Paradise is on. 
You can do both. I mean, obviously, <laughs> I you're watching both. Bachelor I in do. Paradise. You're watching The Green Knight. You know, we contain <laughs> multitudes. <laughs> I feel like, you know, there's also a real community when you watch, like, trashy TV like this. Like, I have a, a Discord channel that's all, like, comics and comics-adjacent people who mm-hmm. watch just garbage television and we just get on there and discuss you know bachelor in paradise or catfish or 90 day fiance is a big one every everyone comes watch 90 day fiance is what i've learned and you know we Matt, this is a have, huge revelation by the way <laughs> we all have our i don't even call them guilty pleasures because i never feel guilty about the no. weird you know <laughs> I have a big soft spot for those god-awful Hallmark mystery movies that, that have, you know, bakers and librarians and crossword puzzle composers <laughs> solving murders. They're terrible, but I find them remarkably soothing. You know, it is what brings you comfort, you know? And, like, <laughs> recently my husband was listening to a podcast and he came into my office while I was working and he was like, I just heard Judd Apatow on a podcast. And he said, when he's done writing, he watches 90 day fiance, just like you. <laughs> I was like, yes, <laughs> we have that in common. <laughs> oh man. I am learning lots. Um, so uh, what are you, re- what are you reading right now? So I have been trying to get caught up. I set a goal of reading like 50 book books this year and i've not read that many um so it's only august (laughs) i got time um i just finished grady hendrix's newest book um so i used to work at cork books as a publicist who was his old publisher um he's with dutton now this new book so but i had to support grady who was one of my favorites when i worked there and he's a great writer so there's no you know there's no guilt i always like reading him so the Mm -hmm. final girl support group which was um really well like everything Grady does it was by turns funny and really really disturbing and (laughs) upsetting um and full of like little nods to like meta horror references and so that was fun um I just I'm starting to um work on another creator-owned script so I'm kind of in this like phase of reading things that uh, would be inspiring for that and so I just read the first volume of Heartstopper and of course I'm blanking out on the author's name now but it's a graphic novel series that's like a queer romance series I think it started as a webcomic and it's very very sweet <laughs> um it was like just so it was just a very nice read um I just finished the new Poison Ivy uh young younger readers from that dc like ya line mm-hmm. which kind yes. of she's my namesake so i <laughs> i read anything poison mm-hmm. ivy usually so um it was very like gothic and i don't know i would have loved it as a teenager so i was really glad it exists for teens um and right now i'm reading the chosen and the beautiful which is this like fantasy kind of retelling of the great Gatsby um it's very cool I'm not that far in. I just started it like a couple days ago but it's like a very interesting take on the great Gatsby so I'm enjoying it so far and the prose is like beautiful in it like it takes Fitzgerald's phrasing in some elements and works it into this other style that just like is gorgeous like it's a beautiful read it's great uh, so Ivy, this has been a lot of fun. It's been an hour. Uh, final question. Uh, how can people follow you online? Keep up with Bountiful Garden, uh, Secret Garden of 81st Street, and the other things you're working on that don't have the word garden in the title. <laughs> <laughs> I do write other things <laughs> that aren't about plants. Exactly. For now, maybe. <laughs> um, so I'm on like every social media platform at Ivy Noel, um, except for TikTok, where somebody else has had the screen name Ivy Noel, I guess, because it took me so long to get on there. So I'm on that one, Ivy Owell, O-H-W-E-L-L, um, which is also, <laughs> I guess, just me giving up um, and joining. Um, I'm at ivynoelweird.com, and that's got my contact form and everything. Um, and then people can pick up Bountiful Garden Issue 1 officially on September 9th. 
9th. Yes, that's the, that's the Wednesday. Um, at their local comic book store or on Comixology or wherever else they get their comics. Um, I know Mad Cave has a really cool program where if you get, I think, all of them digitally, they'll send you the trade in the mail, which I was Ooh. like, this is the coolest idea. More places should do this. Yeah. Um, so if you go to Mad Cave Studios, I'm sure they have more info on that too. Um, Tim Burton on 81st Street comes out on October 19th. Um, and it's available in book and comic book stores, um, wherever you may be, or bookshop.org or wherever you order from online. And then uh, Anne of West Philly comes out March 1st, 2022. So a little bit in the future, but it is coming. <laughs> All right. I mean, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF meaning you can find this podcast along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom and Chris's on Infinite Earths, and a ton of great comics criticism at comicsxf.com. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at comicsxf.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column Written by Matt Lazowitz, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. A $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail for my collection. A $3 donation gets you a slot in the Comics XF staff picks. And a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from Toxman at ComicsXF.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. the Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQ Comics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember, that one time Pete Wisdom stopped a vampire invasion from the moon. WMQA.